What will life look like in 2035? Um, Much better than it is now. I will have my doctorate. Hopefully I have a good job. We'd like to be at peace in the whole world by 2035. Probably won't be like the Jetsons, but it'd be cool. I have no idea because technology keeps changing. I can't even predict the future. That's what we're trying to figure out. Every week leading up to the launch of our Global Risks 2035 report, I'm talking to experts about the global risks shaping our future and what we need to do to ensure that the world of 2035 is a safe and prosperous one. I'm Alex Ward, an Associate Director of the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, and I'll be your host for a three-episode series about life in 2035. What occurred to me in writing this is that many of the trends that we've seen happen at the international level are also beginning to really happen internally. That was Matt Burroughs, director of the Strategic Foresight Initiative in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council and the author of Global Risks 2035. People's ideas about what was supposed to happen 20, 25 years ago have actually been um, completely undermined. The geopolitical landscape has changed enormously, even over the last eight years. We also have had huge developments and are likely to see even more developments on the technological front. And we're also beginning to enter that period of very rapid aging, something that the world has never really experienced before. The big effort in all of these works, whether it was global trends in, the, in government or this particular work, is to try to put it all together. What does it all mean? Where are we really headed? These are the big questions and oftentimes, because there is so much happening, people have a hard time of, of particularly policymakers who don't have that much time on their hands, to put it all together. And that's really the effort here that uh, we're, we're making. Before projecting ahead to 2035, though, we're going to start by looking back 20 or so years. In this episode, I sat down with Tyler Sweat, a director at Toffler Associates, which is a futurist firm, and Jasmine El-Gamal, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, about how change is, ironically, constant, and how many of the problems Matt laid out might be solved. All right, so uh, this should be fun. Thank you both for doing this. Um, Absolutely. Matt Burroughs has written this Global Risks 2035 uh, paper with the main point of identifying sort of the mega trends geopolitically and also at home. And uh, I'll let you guys kind of speak to the report, but at least sort of my impression was a lot of the things that we were so excited about like four or five years ago now kind of have a teeth to them, now have a bit of a nefarious edge. And um, so this episode of the three-part series is really about, you know, what what were the assumptions that we had that are now different and that are, that we might need to rethink? So maybe Tyler, if you want to take a swing at it, you know, what, what do we now know that we didn't know and how is that going to change the way we should think about the future? I think it's deeper than a singular, what did we know or what do we need to know? And it's recognizing the complexity, right? That everything we thought was good or would only be good. That's the problem. It's still good. There's a downside. Right? There's, there's a flip side to every innovation. There's a way it can be repurposed. And there's a complexity to change. And there's a complexity to understanding those drivers of change. So if you think the past is sort of a, an analog world, the present and the future is more of a digital world, what we're seeing is not that, hey, just digital's good and analog's bad or new or old. 
we're seeing a need to understand and appreciate the complexity in both worlds and the ability to operate seamlessly between them. Things are going faster. Technology's moving faster. The world is moving faster. We have more information. Uh, we have the ability to access people, things, knowledge a lot faster. We do not have the abilities to understand what is true, what is real. And there's that tug between perception and reality. And then that fear of the complexity, which we end up inadvertently sort of assuming away or wishing away until it pops up. So I'd, I'd almost pose it as, as we shouldn't have been surprised about a lot of this. The fact that we are surprised or were surprised is the problem we need to take a look at. Okay, so Jasmine Tyler says that we are we were surprised by these by these changes. One, why were we surprised? And two, why haven't we really taken advantage of these changes? You know, what do we need to leverage uh, in order to you know better prepare for for what's coming? I, I think that's a great question, and I really love what Tyler said about the tug between perception and reality. And I think everything that we're talking about today comes back to that. There's a really great line in the report um, that basically says that a lot of the problems that we're having right now have been due to mistaken ideas about what was supposed to happen. And so we had these perceptions as people, as governments, as societies in general, about what the world was supposed to look like, what these social contracts were supposed to mean. And we found that we found, we have found, and we keep finding out that that's like the, the ideas that we have and, or that we had are just not the same as reality. And I think that's causing um, individuals and societies to, to really struggle with how to respond to that. How do you deal with that? I don't think that we can blame people for having these ideas because as Alex and I were talking about earlier, some of these ideas are ideas that we were raised on. You know, go to school, get an education, you'll find a job. Once you find a job, you'll make a lot of money, you'll get married and have a family, you know. So when, we're, when we find that that's not really happening, um, I think people are starting, you know, people get agitated and try to figure out an alternative path. So, um, you know, Matt is one of the, the best at doing these kinds of things. But uh, one of the things I always wonder when I read his work, and it seems to come out in both your comments at this point, um, when it comes to people like us who think about these things on a daily basis, right, that's what we're kind of paid to do. Uh, we think in terms of complexity, in terms of changes and variables and how they might move and whatnot. But the everyday person, I say that with, with love in my heart, right, the, the regular everyday person who doesn't think about these things every day, uh, has sort of a linear set of, of thoughts about, again, as, as Jasmine was pointing to, like, I go to school, I get my master's, I will totally have kids in the house with a white picket fence and my life's going to be good. And if that doesn't happen, then what? You know what? Now everything's broken. And then you start to get instability from the smaller levels all the way up to the geopolitical stuff, which we'll get to in a second. So how do we, and I'll, I'll open it up, you know, how do we kind of bridge that gap? Because the documents like these are trying to say, look, we can go in a whole bunch of different directions. How do you prepare people for that? So I, I think it's twofold. So you're, you're, you're talking one about, you know, what happens when my sort of perception is challenged or when I, when I realize that everything I assumed to sort of becoming no matter what, for lack of a better, we, we had some expectations that, that really weren't grounded in reality. Um, we're looking to the government saying, hey, but uh, to Jasmine's point, I went to college. 
I went to, and you see it, you see it in the Middle East, you see it in Asia and stuff as well, but you see it becoming a, a political platform issue of, well, I, I spent all this money on a school loan, why am I not, why am I not getting into college? Or why am I not, excuse me, why am I not getting the job? Why am I not progressing? Why don't I have this sort of Maslowian sense of security and happiness all the way up? As we look through the power shifts that are still occurring, where you've got individuals that are more hyper-empowered, you've got organizations, large industrial organizations, which are no longer required to produce, to create. You're able to do this kind of across the society. You've got to start seeing governments transform and actually start to embrace that. Instead of being insular, come to me, this is how it's going to be, um, you've got to build a society that's capable of operating, you know, and I, I'll use the third wave, but you've got, you've got to build a third wave society that understands it's not brick and mortar, it isn't linear, that change is very, very complex, and that the paths you can go down, there are many. Tomorrow, there will be a different set. The next day, there will be a different set. It's not sort of like Plinko from uh, The Price is Right, where you've got, you know, one of ten kind of ways you can go. My life goal is to win that, by the way. Oh, God, you and me both. <laughs> but if, if you think about it, and it, almost compare it to, to quantum mechanics, right? At any given time, with any given inflection, it can go in a different direction. So I would start the conversation about the future with society to sort of educate and to sort of make aware that, hey, it's not about a thing. It's not about a specific event or a specific disruption. It's understanding some of those trends and there's ways to take advantage of it. Like power shifts has been talked about for 30 years. It should surprise nobody that we have 3D printing. It should surprise nobody that we have platform-based economies and there's not large infrastructures behind your Ubers and your Airbnbs and all of that. You can call the market what you want, but that shouldn't surprise anyone. You know, where you're seeing rise of non-state actors, that, that should absolutely not surprise anyone. Forget just futurism history mm -hmm. we've got to remember that a lot of this is cyclical a lot of this is there's a few kind of trends that can go in a different way but you can explain a lot of this in some trends um but given the, the rhetoric going on in the election this year i'd say good good luck finding <laughs> someone who wants to communicate it but i mean there's there's an opportunity to really communicate and transform how people look at job mobility how people look at future how people look at livelihoods and creation and value and knowledge and start to get away from trying to sort of rebuild an industrial era or industrial age society in some places for the sake of jobs. Because mm -hmm. then it becomes a question of are we going to do just nationalistic, isolationist type policy or are we going to operate on a global scale and do we want to continue mm -hmm. to be the hegemon? I, I think that's right. I mean, Tyler, you, you, you touch upon a very important point, I think, and that's the need to look at the trends that are currently underway and utilize those trends to move your society in a more positive direction. And so, you know, you have, you have this, to me, one of the most important trends that this report highlights is individual empowerment and how individuals are becoming more and more capable. They have more choices. They have more opportunities at their fingertips in terms of communication, in terms of technology, in terms of mobility. Um, but that comes with downsides as well. And one of the downsides, like we talked about, is this failure of the social contract between state or government and individual. Now, to go to what Tyler said about the election and what, you know, the rhetoric of the US election, or even if you look at the UK and Brexit. So, you know, two things are happening here. One is you have these politicians who are taking advantage of the frustration of individuals and of the lack of 
um, and of the failure of social contracts by, by saying, okay, your governments have failed you, so the answer is to turn inward. The answer is to reject the outside world because that is the problem. The answer is to close our borders because people who are coming in are not helping our society. They're dragging us down. Well, that completely flies in the face of a lot of the trends that this report talks about, right? Like the fact that we have an increasing likelihood of conflict over the next few years. And with that comes the increased risk of spillover of that conflict. I mean, you've seen, um, it just take the Syria conflict. You know, five years ago, we were talking about containment, and now we're seeing entire countries in the West being reshaped, both economically and socially and demographically, by, um, by, by the, um, the spillover of the Syrian conflict. And so, so you can't, on one hand, understand and recognize that borders are not what they used to be and that it is just more and more complicated and more and more, frankly, unrealistic to close your borders and close your society and deal with your problems yourself. You can't acknowledge that and at the same time tell people that that is the answer, is to look inward. You know, on one hand, you have to be able, um, as a leader, you have to be able to recognize the frustration in your society and the frustration of individuals and their desire to have a better life. But on the other hand, you have to take that frustration and not just throw it back at those individuals and say, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, but to take that and to move it in a more positive direction. The need to reconcile between a desire to sort of protect and want something for ourselves, whether it's the UK, whether it's you, pick, pick your country right now, but also the need to want to be able to compete and create value in a global economy. It, when you actually, when you deconstruct it and take the emotion out of it, you're seeing somebody demand half of a reality while wishing away the other half, exactly. but then on the, the very next moment, expect the material benefit from the other half while ignoring the behaviors in the first half. Exactly. And that reconciliation, and it's whether you call it a trend, a driver, just understanding what's causing these worlds to spin. And what's causing kind of that digital analog kind of go back and forth, that's where we've got to get to start to explain that, hey, if you push on this lever, you know, if we close the borders and all jokes about building a moat in a hyper-digital society aside, you know, you can't really isolate anymore. But then you expect the rest of the world to still give you benefit. Yeah, you and can't. you still expect to derive value exactly. from a world you're shunning. Exactly. And I think, Alex, I think you mentioned something like this in, in, in a piece that you wrote recently. But basically, we can't expect to reap the benefits of globalization and pretend that the negative consequences of globalization don't apply to us. You, you just really can't have it both ways. And so if you think about it that way, how can we take the negative aspects of globalization and turn those into opportunities and turn those into positives as opposed to pretending that they don't exist? So what I've gotten from this conversation is what I think is the truism of world history and global affairs, and I call it the uh, the Janet Jackson uh, maxim, which is, what have you done for me lately, right? So great song if you haven't heard it. And what have you done for me lately? She's basically making the case, not to be said on this podcast, but essentially like all the benefit I get from, from X 
is what I get, period. Like, I'm supposed to be getting things. And also, to Tyler's point, is I also want to be contributing things. That seems to be sort of the new maxim in this world. And so you're now combining a I want stuff and I want to be able to give stuff. And I want that dual opportunity, which maybe has existed in the past, but is definitely existing now. But the barriers are kind of blocked. And so we will get to the big geopolitical stuff. Um, but I'm very interested in sort of this, you know, what does this mean, especially in, in today's political climate, it's about what does this mean for me, right? This populist uh, growth is, I think, is important. So what does this mean for me? All these trends, so, okay, so let me ask it in the so what question. So what individuals are empowered? So what the demographics are changing? So what that some people don't have food? What, uh, you know, so what that technology can be used by, by anybody? I'm, I'm, just some, I'm just some person. What does this mean for me? So you've got, a, you've got this insatiable kind of need and expectation that, well, I can get it now. I can, I can push my phone and I can get whatever I want right now. Um, and what you're starting to see with that is sort of a sense of unease. Because now that I can see all the information, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'm sort of seeing the shadow of the wizard behind the curtain, and I, I don't really like what I see. And that's where I start to think you, you get into this distrust. You know, there's, there's this big argument of, oh, well, there's backdoor trading going on, you know, in banks or in different political organizations or there's corruption everywhere or there's terrorism everywhere. Like, yes, terrorism has gone up you know, in quantity. Probably if we, and I don't believe it's in there. It would be interesting to look at, like, technology diffusion with terrorism going up and see if it's just it's an ease of action versus kind of more angry people in the world. Cause I, I don't think that to be the case. Um, but you can see it all now. So what does that mean? If I don't trust it all and I'm going back and forth and I keep going back to the perception reality and the trust and mistrust, cause it's an expectation thing. So what it means to you now, hyper empowered individual is you have the means to pop up and actually affect something, but you also have the responsibility. Singular people can disrupt states. Look at the Panama Papers. Look at Snowden. Look at the DNC hack. Uh, Julian Assange, I, th I think this morning, if I read correctly on the way in, said, I've got more Clinton emails. They're coming out around the third debate. But I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about hyper-empowered individuals, and we're talking about Western-backed, whether or not it's you know one of the, the big superpowers, hegemons, kind of getting amputated to a degree. You know, they're, they're getting their hands tied by one or two people in a Twitter account or a YouTube channel, or it's not, it's not always a, a U.S. Russia, U.S. China. Those are the easy ones to talk about because they fit into boxes. There's geography, there's a flag, there's a uniform, and there's a person, right? I could say Jasmine's bad. I could say Alex is bad. If I don't understand what's going on and we're sort of getting hacked by one-offs, what, what does that mean for, for our understanding so Alex, you had asked us to think about what, what, um, what we didn't see in this report that we would have liked to see. And one thing that I, that I thought was implied throughout the report, but that I thought could have been um, you know, more prominent and that I think we should talk about uh, you know, moving forward is this issue of identity and how identity both at the individual level and at the state level has changed uh, in the post-Cold War era. So, and 
you know, I'm not going, we don't have to go into all of this right now, but I think the author does a really good job of laying out, you know, trends and things that have happened since, you know, in the post-Cold War era, um, like, you know, the role that Russia sees itself playing in this new world and how Russia sees itself vis-a-vis -vis the United States right now versus 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And so um, a lot of what Tyler was saying goes to this point, you know, if we are going to address some of these problems, both as individuals and as countries, I think you first have to have a very clear understanding and idea of what your identity is. Uh, and, and, and just as importantly, how the person in front of you sees their identity. Uh, it's not just about figuring out who we are. It's about figuring out what what everyone else thinks they are too and therefore how to respond to them based on that we've buried the lead a little bit and that's my fault the lead of matt's report um is quite a big one which mm -hmm. is that the conflict risk is at its highest level since the cold war that's a pretty big statement coming from from him uh, and just anyone in general for just for for the for listeners out there who may not have read the report yet, the other ones outside of the risk of conflict is highest since the end of the Cold War. Uh, the other ones are that there's no end in sight uh, for the Middle East instability. That China can be a swing player. That essentially it can either choose to be part of the world order or challenge it. And the other one is that the West, so to speak, um, doesn't really have a clear way forward. And so, while the reason I asked the questions at the beginning that I did were were, were as follows. World affairs and world leaders are going to have to deal with these big things while still trying to deal with the problems of their every of, of their citizens and of everyday people who, again, might understand that these things are happening in, in the in the distance, but do not affect their everyday lives on, on, a, on, of course, on a daily basis. So what is the challenge for, let's say, the policymaker first in dealing with these things and then kind of with the international system writ large? If you look at these four like major global actors, if we take Europe as one, if we take the U.S. as the other, China and Russia, and if you, if you think about the way that the identities of those four actors are shifting and evolving and have evolved over the last 10 years and will continue to do so, I, d I don't necessarily think of conflict between those actors as something that looks like, you know, Russia versus the U.S. ground war, you know, old school type of conflict. I mean, I, I think of it more as proxy wars. I think of it as testing each other's limits, but not in our own countries. And the reason why I think the Middle East is related to all of this is because you, you see this playing out in the Middle East right now. And so, you know, if you look at a country like Syria or even Lebanon, which isn't necessarily in a conflict right now, but if you look at the different actors in a country like Lebanon, in Syria, um, it's very clear that these are not just local conflicts. You know, the, the, the situation in Syria is not just a civil war but you can argue that it is a conflict between these big actors that we've been talking about. And so I think just as we're thinking about these issues moving forward and as we start to think about, well, how do we address these issues? It's, it really is important, and this, this may be completely obvious to some listeners, um, but maybe not so much to others, how interrelated these issues are and how one affects the other. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. See, when you, you look at the Middle East and... 
you talk about will it will it ever end and how that's kind of a big concern now. I mean, that wasn't a concern 20 years ago. There's still a massive different but conflicts going on. But it's that hyper-empowered. It's the ease, the ability to connect, the ability to see what's going on, the ability for folks to travel the mobility of different individuals so it becomes a concern. Um, you know, you talk about conflict. I, I'm glad you brought up the, the type of conflict because conflict is a very easy word to throw around. Um, means very different things to very different people. Um, we've long assumed that conflict would be fought on someone else's backyard, um, that we would send our, our boys and girls off to go fight it, and they would come back, it'd be good. Um, it's not really the case right now. Like, it's starting to come home. Um, I would caution, as a, as a futurist company, not to wish away or will away a conventional fight um, because the second we do is the second it will pop up. Um, asymmetric approaches shouldn't surprise anyone anymore. If we are the biggest in the room, someone's going to figure out how to knock us down with a rock instead of going blow for blow. And at some point, if we lean so far into the asymmetric, unconventional, small stealth proxy, the way to knock us down is going to be just a conventional lever. Um, I go back in the beginning when we talked about the need to kind of go back and forth between different realities, whether it's digital, analog, conventional, unconventional. Um, as we're looking at policy agreements and as we're looking at partnerships and as we're thinking about what if, what could, we've got to understand that while both might be possible, there are attributes where we can hedge and start to make informed decisions that don't necessarily put in one camp or the other and not camp you know, Republican or, or Democrat or, or right or left, but camp full proxy war, camp full conventional war, you know, camp this guy's an ally, that guy's an ally. We call it competitive a lot. So you're going to, there'll be a competitor at one point, there'll be teammates the other. Frenemies. Frenemies, yeah. You have a relationship. Because in different scenarios, you're going to need different coalitions. You're going to need deep coalitions that are able to really share information fast and transform. And I think it requires a different appreciation for the world and how interrelated and how complex and how deep a lot of this is because you could make a hypothesis that we, we've made a lot of decisions at a superficial level um, because it was easy. Things couldn't affect us. We, in effect, have a really big moat around us and no one could really come to America and, you know, 9-11 was the, was the big one, but there's not, there's not terrorist attacks happening. There's not water shortages which is, quite frankly, probably the largest security issue facing the world. Um, there's no food scarcity. There's no, re I mean, there is, but not on a massive, like, mow down society level. You're not seeing diseases. We've been isolated from a lot of things, and we've sort of gotten comfortable on that isolation, and we've gotten, of ignorant is too harsh of a word, but we've sort of willed away all the bad. And now, as we continue to open new channels of information and access to awareness, we're seeing it. And then all of a sudden, there's an expectation on policymakers that hasn't been there for 20 years. What are you going to do about this? What do you mean, what am I going to do about that? It's been happening for 20 years, and nobody cared. Um, so it's understanding that changing perception, that kind of fluid perception uh, of what folks think reality is, and also that, that expectation you brought up earlier that, hey, I'm going to ask you for something, and I'm, I'm going to want instant gratification. Whether that's, hey, here's a response and here's a bill I'm working or here's a new agreement or here's a way to get a tariff or, you know, a subsidy. Um, but there's going to be a, a challenge of navigating that world where we do deal with a Russia or a China or 
you know, somebody in Kashmir blows themselves up and Pakistan's first nuke policy launches and then India launches and then what happens? One, one thing I wonder about as you're talking about this is whether it is possible today to rally uh, a society around a single cause or a single identity, given all the trends that we've discussed throughout this podcast, is it, is it realistic? And if it's not realistic, then, well, how do we address that? And I actually don't have the answer to that. Um, but uh, Peter Guber, who's a US, uh, UCLA professor and a filmmaker, um, said something that you know I think is really true, um, and that that is that people need to believe that they're part of something bigger, you know, that there's a mission that they are a part of. And in my mind, one of the most difficult things about today and the world as it is today is how difficult it is to des to describe what that is. What, what that mission is, what that identity is, especially if you're a leader, especially if you're, um, you know, responsible for rallying people around a cause. How do you do that? What's the cause? What's the mission? Um, to me, that is, that's, it's something that, um, that I think we need to think more about. When we look at, you know, identity, I, I don't think it's a, we either go back to the old identity or we don't have one. The world is changing. And I'm going to keep using kind of the the national level, governmental to, yeah, to yeah. corporate corporation experiences, right? The markets change, the world changes. You can fight that change and sort of pretend it's not going to happen, and you know you can Kodak kind of a way into the digital world of film, or you can sort of embrace the change and say, hey, you know, national identity might be something different for America than it was 20 years ago. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Exactly. Change isn't just a thing. I mean, change is life. It's going to always change. As soon as you get something, we get a new identity, the world's going to change again. It's going to change again. It's, it's very Taoist right of you. <laughs> yeah. But we've got to but sort of true. embrace that yeah. and look for that yeah. and then find that kind of middle ground, the yin and the yang Absolutely where we're comfortable. Agree. Well, all right. Uh, thank you so much, Jasmine and, and, and Tyler, for talking uh, and joining the episode one of this uh, podcast series. Um, for those listening, episode two will actually be a conversation with science fiction writers about what might actually happen within these trends kind of um, individually uh, and what are, might be some of the wacky scenarios we might see. Um, really trying to go outside of the box on this. Uh, so thank you for joining me for this one. This was a great conversation and uh, hope to see you both on uh, September 22nd when the report comes out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. In the next episode, I will speak with August Cole and Madeline Ashby, two top science fiction writers, about what life in 2035 might look like and the trends that will change our world. For more information on the Strategy Initiative at the Atlantic Council, check out acstrategy.net and engage with us on social media using hashtag lifein2035. And if you have any videos or ideas you want to submit to us, please do so at lifein2035 at atlanticcouncil.org.